Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm fucking Chesney. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm over here shaking my head in shock. Uh, Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, (laughs) yeah, so we're on episode 20, and your girl Wakaba is going through some shit, but like, as for like what and who this is, like, uh, this is a podcast where we watch Revolutionary Girl Utena. Um, if you're somehow confused about how you got here, go back and take it from the beginning. Uh, I am a decades long super fan. Chesney is seeing this all for the first time, and yeah, apparently has some big feelings about uh, Wakaba being with Sionji and the shit that goes down. I do. I do. I did not think coming into this episode from the last one, from the preview that we saw, I thought this was going to be very cut and dry for me. I thought I was going to be like, boo, Sionji, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He sucks. We know he sucks, which we do. We know he sucks. But this one, I have to say right now is probably my favorite episode to date. Uh, It is very, very good. And uh, I wrote an entire, like, two paragraphs (laughs) in my notes about my own feelings about this episode. Um, Normally, I just take notes about, like, what's going on in the dialogue and different things to, like, um, point out or hit on throughout the podcast. But... For this one, I literally wrote like a little analysis. (laughs) (laughs) I like wrote like little therapist notes at the end. (laughs) So to be clear for for you listening, uh, we just watched this episode minutes ago. And so I have been sitting here in silence the entire (laughs) time while Chesney writes this essay. Just like oh, waiting for the moment I could hit record and we could start. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I just I had to get that out. I had to write it all down. <laughs> I really did. Like I could have I really could have written an entire like fanfic or analysis or something about this episode, I feel. Oh, just like with the last episode where we see a character who is too good for the Black Rose. The actual content of the episode makes us question some of the stuff that we've seen up until this point. Yeah. And so knowing that Sionji has been crashing with Wakaba for half of the season. Has it been that long? I couldn't tell the time. He was expelled back in like episode 10 or something like that. But he's been with her this whole time? That's what is being shown to us anyway. Like, he's been, you know, making himself a nuisance in the background for her this whole time. Oh, my God. Well, making himself a nuisance and also doing other things, which we will get to. Let me just say this. If Sionji was a real-ass man in this real-ass world... 
I would drive myself over to wherever his location is right now and beat his ass for what he does in this episode. <laughs> I am not joking. <laughs> yeah, no, this is like this. What Sionji does in this episode is what everyone is actually describing when you talk about a fuck boy. Yeah. Like this is the uh <laughs> this is the bodhisattva of fuckboy. Like he is the apotheosis of everything fuckboy and Wakaba has to deal with this. Like everything he does to a T is like the bullshit manipulation that guys do um when they just don't have the emotional maturity to handle a real relationship. And I'm over here going through the five stages of grief because of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm already in anger. (laughs) I was in shock and disbelief and then sadness and now anger. (laughs) Sometime during this episode, as we're recording, you're going to hit bargaining, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) I'm probably, you know, probably I will. Um, bargaining is going to come when Chesney is asking uh, you, the listener, to provide her with fanfic that corrects the record on all this stuff. <sighs> no, I just want fanfic where Wakaba is happy because that's what she deserves. Okay, there we go. There's the, the bargaining. Um- <laughs> <laughs> See, we're moving through it fast. <laughs> Look, we got shit to do. We have a podcast to record. We you do. You got to get through those stages quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh- <laughs> okay. Anyhow... As for, like, the actual episode itself, uh, it opens with a scene that is lit. Actually, I'm just going to say, like, the entire episode is lit as though the entire thing takes place at the golden hour. Like, this yeah. is always taking place in that twilight bit between when classes end and the first hours of getting home. Like the sun is always just on the horizon. This entire episode, the shadows are longer and darker. Ironically, like the entire scene is cast in a light that is very reminiscent of Wakaba's hair. Mm -hmm. Like this is an episode where the lighting does more than the framing. Of course, because it's golden hour. It's also just very romantic. It's just the romantic lighting. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it's that idea that you're seeing everything in its so-called best light. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it, those... like the rose-colored glasses? It's that kind of thing. Yeah. So for anyone who, like, has never done anything with film or photography, the golden hour describes um, that hour or so right before sunset where the sun is actually in a position to perfectly light whatever it is you're trying to capture on film. So like instead of having to set up lights or to um, adjust for the fact that like at high noon, the sun is so bright, it is blasting out the entire scene. um, It's a time of day where like you set up your camera and you can just shoot whatever you want to shoot because the sun is doing all the work for you. Um, and it also gives like a very particular color to the scene, which is what we see here. Um, and it's very useful for like this, these like romantic shots like this. Yeah. And either, <laughs> so either the 
dorm is super far away from like the buildings where classes are held or dorms rather, excuse me, not just one. (laughs) We know there's more than one, but um, either it's super far away or Wakaba's just having to go back and forth between a lot uh, for her to be in this golden hour and for her to be getting home during it. I think we've already established that classes seem to run really late at Atori Academy. Yeah, but she was like walking through town. So I'm like, I don't know if she like goes into town and comes back. I don't know if it's just really far away. I don't know. <laughs> so I I think at this point. Between- Otori Academy just swallowed a town. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think at this point, it's becoming clearer that the dorms aren't actually on the campus of the school. Yeah. Because like. Whenever we see, um, whenever we see the Kiryu's, whatever their residence is, is clearly off campus. Yeah. Um, whenever Utena is walking back to her dorm, it looks like she's either off campus or at the very edge of campus. Um, you know, we, we get these scenes where a person is walking home, like... I'm thinking mainly of Wakaba in this one, um, Utena and Nanami. Mm -hmm. I think those are the ones that we see actually walking home. And it's always curiously distant from campus. Like there's no, there's nothing in the shot that shows us the campus off to the other side or nearby in the background. It's always like the city in the background. Yeah. Yeah. So it really messes with the the sense of geography of the space. Like if you go back to watch episode one, like I don't know that there's any buildings that are clearly identifiable as the dorms in that episode. Mm-hmm. Like in that top down shot um, of the entire campus. Yeah, I'm just going to bring up a, a I'm looking at a picture of it right now. Um, there's the buildings that are all recognizable as being like the room, the buildings that like they're walking around in with like the archways and the arched windows and all of that stuff. But as far as like actual dorms go, it's possible that the buildings on the sides are, but it's never framed that way. Mm -hmm. Like we never see the wall around the campus. It's always like you can see the town or the person is walking down a city street. And so I'm thinking it's like right off campus, like down the hill from the, the school, something like that. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just curious, like wherever they are. Um, we open with Wakaba walking home and interspersed throughout this is in voiceover the rumors that the other girls at the school are are spreading about like what happened to Sionji. Um, like no one knows why he was expelled. And then they're like ribbing each other about like buying photos or um, having a crush on him, that kind of thing. We never see or hear Wakaba in these conversations because she's the one who does know where he is. She's the one who does know what happened. And she's walking with that smile like she's got a secret because her secret is that she has Sionji at her home. 
we also have these interspersed flashbacks as well, kind of catching us up on what happened like at this point, I think eight episodes ago, nine episodes ago, something like that, uh, about like why he was expelled, which was attacking, well, kidnapping Anthe and then uh, injuring Toga during like the duel that followed him kidnapping Anthe. Uh, and so like he got expelled and this is where we get the reveal right before the title card of, yeah, it's Sionji at her house at, or at her dorm and he welcomes her home. And he's giving very much rebel boy vibes with his little jean jacket on and his hair <laughs> and his ponytail. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, oh, my gosh. What was, what was that? Um the Hardy Boys. He's giving very much Hardy Boys. He's giving very much boxcar children. Outsiders. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A little bit of the Fonz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Oh, I yeah, like so a very, much. very stereotypically like 1950s rebel. Yes. And yeah, like you said, he welcomes her home and she says, I'm home and clicks that lock shut and we get that title card so quick. Because that's her trying to keep this secret out, like away from everybody else, even the title card. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first like proper scene is a fairly long one involving the two of them. And this entire scene is like two parallel conversations happening. Yeah. <laughs> She's talking about uh, bringing him a gift, which is a coffee cup, and making coffee for him. And at the same time, he's talking about how grateful he is that she is taking care of him. And at no point in this conversation does it seem like the two of them are speaking to one another. No, not at all. Um, until he grabs her hands toward the end of the conversation, but we'll get there. Yeah. What I want to point out first is like this effusive gratitude that he's showing without any attentiveness to the, what she's actually saying is like so classic, like love bombing. Yeah. Like this is the kind of, it's like a, uh, this is like a, a tactic that people will use to manipulate people. I don't think he's doing it consciously. I think that's part of what makes him a fuckboy is like, this isn't a conscious effort that he puts into this. It's just, she's not like, she's not worthy of his respect. And so her helping him and the fact that he needs her help, is more like more like denigrating him than it is him actually appreciating her. So you don't think there was any intentional manipulative. Well, let me put it this way. You don't think there was any manipulative intention in him seeking her out to house and shelter him and keep him secret to where he's like just on the cusp of the campus, like just close enough, but you know. So what I want to, uh, the way I want to answer this is like, I don't believe that 
most people who are being so-called manipulative, I don't believe that that is a conscious effort on their part. That isn't to excuse it at all. Just that like it falls into a category of behavior that I don't think anyone is uh, so callous. Like, I don't want to say anyone. <laughs> I don't I don't think most people are callous enough to be like consciously playing like the 3D chess to manipulate people the way that people feel manipulated afterward. At the same time, uh, he isn't being honest, he isn't being sincere, and he isn't taking actions to better his situation um, independent of what he can get from Wakaba. Yeah. Um, I think he is definitely seeing her as a means to an end, but I don't believe that's a conscious effort on his part. But what I, the question I was trying to ask was, you don't think he intentionally sought her out or do you? Um, I'm sure that he did intentionally seek her out. I don't think, his motivations for doing so were necessarily clear to him. Okay. Like, I don't think he ran the math and was like, oh yes, she's the easiest person to manipulate. <laughs> Sorry. It's more like I'm in a desperate situation and she'll help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I said, I'm not excusing this at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, can we just talk about the fact that Wakaba didn't just like, she didn't just get him a coffee cup. She got him. Well, she got them basically like his and hers mugs. Oh, cutesy, yeah. cutesy little Ram, his and hers mugs. And he doesn't even notice that. I don't think. Right, because he's preoccupied with his own emotional state. Right. He's too self-absorbed. Yeah. And like, at that moment, he's too busy having too big of feelings about his own self-pity. Yeah. I promised I wouldn't stay long, but I keep hanging around. Like, okay, leave. <laughs> right. Because it's a performance. Yeah, it, Exactly. It, it isn't about actually expressing uh, sincere remorse for anything or gratitude. It's a performance to quiet her feelings or her misgivings about the situation um, preemptively. Like she has not right. expressed at any point that she feels burdened or put out by this. But oh, he no. is preemptively doing this because on some level he knows he's you know, being on like on some level, he knows he's being a burden mm -hmm. because or he feels that way. Well, on some level, he knows that. Um, trying to think of like how I want to say this, like he knows this is how most people would feel. Type yeah, of thing. like it's a projection, right? Like he knows that if she was doing this to him the way he's doing it to her, he would feel burdened by this because he doesn't actually love her. And so like, he's projecting this onto her, assuming that like, she feels the way he would feel. 
in this situation because he can't conceive of the fact that she's actually being this generous and this kind and this loving because those feelings aren't genuine for him. Right. Yeah. And just like you said earlier, having the two conversations, you know, his performative, Oh, I promised I wouldn't stick around. And she's just like, want some coffee? Because she is completely avoiding saying anything in response. She doesn't want to give any kind of anything there to make him think that he's not welcome because her worst nightmare is him leaving. Right. Because he knows that if she had as much sense of self-worth as he has, she would kick him out immediately. But she's enamored with him. Right. But like, if she had as much sense of self-worth as he has for himself, she would kick him out because of like what this is about is not what she's looking for. Not what she's really looking for anyway. Yeah. Also, can we talk about the fact that he says, I had no money and no friends and had to crawl back to campus like no money. I thought you came from money. Did your parents disown you? Did Toga sue you for all you had? Like, <laughs> I, what what, I, what happened? I think that this is part of what goes on between him and Toga, though, too, is that Toga definitely comes from money. Yeah. And Sionji is his poor friend. Oh. And I want to say, like, poor in quotes. Because anyone who goes to a Tory Academy clearly comes from some money, but there are tiers of wealth and there can be just like you can be on completely different levels while also being wealthier than most average people can understand. Yeah. Yeah. It was just shocking to hear him go, I had no money. I have no money. And like, also, we see through this episode, Wakaba leaving him like 500 yen. Or, you know, like leaving him money. Five bucks. (laughs) Yeah. But like leaving him money to go buy stuff because he's saying like, oh, I have no money. And she's even going to like that extent for him. Her, a student who has definitely has less money than him. And I would say like, it's entirely possible that this is true like there's a couple scenarios here right like it could be that sionji actually is the scholarship student mm-hmm. at Atori academy like toga is excellent at at kendo and sionji is actually good enough to be there on like a kendo scholarship mm-hmm. and he actually is a legit uh poor student Option B is he is wealthy beyond belief and this is an act. I don't think he is, like, as manipulative as he is, I don't think that he's toga level manipulative, if that makes sense. I agree. No, yeah, I agree. (laughs) Because, like, that's a toga move right there. Um, Aside from the fact that toga would never pretend to not have wealth. um, (laughs) Yeah. But, like, that level, that, like, scale of conscious lying, that's toga shit. Um, I think option three might be a little more plausible, be a little more plausible, which would be 
he's not broke and he's not necessarily poor, but his pride keeps him from, say, asking his parents or informing his parents of his need Mm. for money to live off campus. Yeah, that I could definitely see. (laughs) Yeah, and he goes so far as to call Wakaba the brave Joan of Arc that chose to hide him. (laughs) Again, back to the love bombing. Yeah. Like, he feels he is committing a rudeness by doing all of this. And he cannot accept that she is being just generous enough to help him. Mm -hmm. To him... The world is way more transactional than that. His view of women is way more transactional than that. Yeah. And so he he feels like he is incurring a debt by not being able to provide something in this relationship because he doesn't mm-hmm. believe that what he is doing is providing anything in this relationship. Which also, this is totally outside the scope of this episode, but also just says a lot about his relationship that he had with Toga and with pretty much anybody. Oh, and himself. Like, yeah, this kind of manipulation doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from a lack of self-worth, like his own lack of self-worth. Yeah. Uh, And so like he is projecting this outward And the helper part of, like, this is the codependency piece. Like, the helper part of of Wakaba is being preyed upon by this tendency in him. This is why I say, like, I don't think it's conscious. I think it's compulsive. Mm -hmm. One more thing about, like, the shot in this scene at the very end. This episode is going to... You know, talk a lot about Wakaba shining and flourishing. Like the episode title is Wakaba Flourishing. Mm-hmm. And there's a shot at the end of this conversation where there is a lot of negative space in the frame. Wakaba's in the lower left portion of the frame, and the entire rest of the frame is the light from the window shining down on her Mm -hmm. and that also happens to be the direction that Sionji is relative to her in the scene he's not in the shot but that's where the light is coming from and it's this really heavy-handed symbol of this idea that like the glow that is upon her is coming from this guy yeah yeah the whole theme in the episode of special people versus quote-unquote normal people or people in the background um a really disgusting philosophy but we will get to that (laughs) yeah um yeah yeah that's a good point the light coming from him specifically the way that that frame was drawn also i know we've talked about I know we've talked about Sionji being manipulative and like things being gross, but the way he's very charismatic. And when you first watch this episode, like me as a first time watcher, even though I'm like, I know this dude is a piece of shit, yada, yada, yada. He's still charismatic enough 
to make you want to hope for the best. Oh, for sure. You still want to hope that maybe he is actually sorry. And that is also what makes him a peak fuckboy. Because you're like, well, maybe he has changed. Maybe he has turned over a new leaf. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see as time goes on. I was so much more open to him having grown as a person the first time I saw this show. Yeah. Um, And I don't mean like, now that I know how this episode ends, I think he's awful. I'm in a completely different place in my life now. And like, um, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast yet, but like, I have my master's degree in uh, professional counseling. So mental health counseling. Um, I don't work as a therapist. I I do other uh, mental health work. I do tech stuff involving mental health. But being able to recognize the the phenomenon of like the parallel conversation and what that actually means about their relationship, yeah, is not lost on me anymore. Like I don't need to see the end of this episode to see that scene. For what it is. Like there is zero potential for this relationship at that point. Mm-hmm. Not without like a real come to Jesus moment for him about <laughs> the way he is treating her. Yeah. And I don't mean him throwing himself at her and apologizing. I mean like actually looking in the mirror and seeing his behavior for what it is. And also from her to have the wherewithal and the um, the strength of will to hold them accountable. Like, don't rely on an allowance. Go get a fucking job, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, if you want to be an equal partner in this relationship, be in this relationship. Don't just mooch off of her. Yeah. But again, she doesn't... It goes back to her own feelings about herself. Not thinking that she's, you know, special enough on her own. Right. So she'll just take whatever he'll give, which is, ah, it hurts me. (laughs) (laughs) So we do Um, get one of like the few moments of comedy in this episode where uh, a visitor shows up, like one of the other girls in the dorm. Here's her talking to Sionji and knocks on the door. And the excuse she makes is that she's talking to God and that she's praying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And also, you know, seeing Sionji, like, I I don't even know what to call that fast crawl away from her. I I wrote it down as like spider crawl. (laughs) (laughs) And then also like Pokemon wiggle out from under the bed. Like, (laughs) yeah. Also, scandalous, but I have to pose it here because this is the podcast. Do you think they shared a bed? This is such a pregnant pause. Oh, man. So, probably. Okay, I'll say this. If this happened during the next plot arc... Absolutely. Categorically, yes. I don't know that the show is going that far yet with these characters and their relationships. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I'm not even, I'm not even talking like having sex. I'm talking, do you think that they shared a bed? Do you think they did the fan, (laughs) the fanfic trope of sharing a bed at night? (laughs) (laughs) The only one bed trope. Um, Yes. (laughs) I think if that was the case, we would get a little bit more. Like we would have seen it. Yeah. Or there would have been like some other implication besides just like living together. Do I think two teenagers illicitly living together aren't <laughs> boning down? No. Like, I, I'm sure that's happening. Um, <laughs> but, like, the, the other scenario I can imagine here is that they are not and that they aren't even having sex because Sionji believes this girl is beneath him. Yeah, and she was too... She was super shy when he grabbed her hand. She, like, freaked out. Yeah, that is not the body language of someone who is accustomed to touching the other person. Right. I just had to pose it here on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just being thorough. (laughs) But yeah, um, no, if this happened in the next plot arc with everything that goes down in that one, I think that the answer would obviously be yes. Um, But at this point in the show, I don't think they're there yet. Um, at no point do I think that the show makes clear whether they have advanced a grade or anything like that. But like time is definitely passing for these characters. They are all absolutely older than they were episode one, but I don't think they're that much older either. (laughs) Yeah. Um, this may all be happening during a single school year, which also absolutely wild to consider. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Hey, some school years did kind of feel like that as when you were in high school. Or middle school, you know. That's true. Yeah. So then we get the montage of Wakaba flourishing, literally. Like, she's talking to herself across this entire scene about, like, how Sionji came to her and uh, dances in her dreams. But while this is happening, we see a montage of how Wakaba is now too busy to watch Utena's game. Yep. Which is a huge one right off the bat where like, this is the character that Wakaba has had like the straightest of straight girl crushes on and has been admiring this entire, entire series. And now she's too busy for her. Mm-hmm. And uh, we- <laughs> We see Nanami's boys uh, messing with a Ouija board and <laughs> she's like, nope, don't have time for that. We see her go back to the dorms. Everything is lit in orange. Uh, we see her doing well in class. Um, we see her doing well in sports herself. So like tennis, I think, mm-hmm. is one of the things that she's playing. Um yeah, she's excelling at literally everything. Yeah. Yeah, that, that tennis shot, she looked phenomenal. She's doing great in her science labs, in math class, like literally every even cleaning. She's just like glowing. And she has a group of friends that does not involve Utana. Mm-hmm. She's at lunch with a group of she's at, she's at lunch with someone who isn't Utana. Like we've never seen this. <laughs> no. She's usually making lunch for Utana. Mm-hmm. So finally, the uh, the the actual main character of the show 
finally appears. <laughs> and she's like, hey, girl, what's up? You've been way too busy for me lately. What's going on? You look amazing. <laughs> um, you have a glow about you. You even seem prettier. And it's just like trying to figure out what's going on with, uh, with Wakaba. And I think this is fascinating. She is keeping this a secret, even from Utena. Yeah, I mean, I get it, though. Because from her perspective, she even says, now I'm special as long as I have this secret. Right. So she's going to do whatever it takes to protect to protect it and to protect her happiness. Also, I, I wonder, in keeping it from Utena... There is the question of why. I get the, like... Utena would never keep that a secret. (laughs) Well, no, no, no. But, but like, what what would she even do? You know, like, oh, he's on, like, school property? Kick him off? Like, what would be the end result there? Oh, no. Why isn't she telling her? I don't mean, like, Utena wouldn't keep it a secret, like, morally. I mean, Utena physically couldn't keep it a secret. Like, she would ask about it so loudly that the entire room would hear her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. I get it. (laughs) Like, she'd ask about it in front of Mickey or or something like that, you know? Like, (laughs) zero sense of, like, who's listening to this conversation. Yeah. Okay. I was like, is she worried about, like, judgment or... But also, I I think that, I think you got at it a moment ago with, like, by keeping it from Utena, it shows that this is, like, entirely hers. Yeah. Like, this is something that she finally has that is all hers and is not bound up with Utena in any way. And we find yeah. out that that's, like, not necessarily true. Because of, like, the relationship to Anthe. But finally, like, she has something that is uniquely hers. Yeah. That's it. And it pains me every time she does this. But I know why. But every time Utena goes to Akio for advice... (sighs) Yeah, it's become, like, a regular segment of this, this season. Is her going to Akio for advice. And I get it because it's like, he's an adult, he's in a position of, you know, power within the school, so she feels like she can confide in him, especially because she's outside. he's outside of the student council, so... And he's made himself available yeah. as a mentor, yeah. as an adult who, who can be approached. And like, I, I harp on this every time. It is vital for kids and teens to have relationships with adults who are not their parents. Yes. To have those mentor relationships. Yes. But <laughs> it is also vital that those relationships are with healthy adults. Mm-hmm. That is not the case here. <laughs> right. And so, ev- it's... Ah! Because she doesn't know, I'm just like, God, I wish I could just tell you... <laughs> I wish I could just jump through this screen and tell you, Utena, like, he is not trustworthy, girl. I know you think he is. And it's it's so hard because it's like, for me, this is a depiction of how easy it is to be fooled. 
Oh, so right now on the internet, in like the discourse, <laughs> there's a lot of talk about grooming and that word gets thrown around a whole lot for stuff that is categorically not grooming. Mm -hmm. This is like, yeah, this scene is textbook grooming behavior. Oh, yeah. Where um, she comes to him with a concern, a legitimate concern. He starts to answer it in a way that on the surface sounds reasonable. It sounds like a cynical, but at least like acceptable answer. I don't personally believe it to be true, but like, do I believe that there are healthy adults out there with this view who could express this view? Yes. But the way he's deploying it here, once again, is meant entirely to build Utena's trust in him and also further the idea that Utena is somehow special. Because yeah. that feeling of an adult seeing you as special, one, is something that should be able to be healthy. But because we know he's a predator, we know that this is not yeah, just the way he starts off this conversation leaves a wrong taste in your mouth. Because Utena's like, oh, Wakaba seems so different. And Akio responds with, like a goddess whose name is recorded in the stars? A bitch, who the fuck starts a conversation <laughs> like that? <laughs> Excuse me? Like, uh, <sighs> He is just plain weird. And of course he is because he's a predator. But like what he actually says here is um, like, you wouldn't understand you're born for a special destiny. Mm -hmm. He's like, there are special people in the world, people who, who draw attention. Um, and he specifically cites her as being one. And she's confused by that. And he's like, see, you're not even aware of it. Um, most and so that is a thing, right? Like having that perspective on yourself of someone sharing like something that you're not aware of about yourself. Like the fact that Utena walks through the world without recognizing how different and how special she actually is because of her attitude and because of her talents. Um, having an adult be able to point that out to you to be like, you need to rein that in a little bit because you're just going to piss people off. <laughs> you know? You're going to hurt people with your ignorance. Um, being able to have that conversation maturely with somebody is one thing. But again, we know that his objective here in saying this to her is to groom her. Yeah. It's not supposed to be a conversation about, hey, maybe have some self-awareness. Right. No. <laughs> Right. This is yeah, this is not about building Utena's self-awareness at all. This no. is about making her feel special in his presence. Yeah. Ugh. Disgusting. And so he and says, most people exist as one among many, but given the chance, they can shine. Which is like so desperately cynical. 
this is a completely separate soapbox, but like I cannot stand the the way that society denigrates the so-called average. Um, the idea that like everyone has to be the best, the greatest, whatever the superlative is. Whereas like when you actually examine when people are happy, it's pretty much just when their needs are met. And yeah. that doesn't take a whole lot. That is not to that is not to justify depriving someone of anything. But at the same time, like it doesn't take being a superstar to be happy. And so the way that he is so disdainful of anyone who isn't special is the back half of the grooming mindset. <laughs> yeah. Like he is now separating her from the others metaphorically and not just physically by saying like, you're different, you're special, and that makes you better than them. She's having a moment to shine right now, but hers won't last forever. You are the gifted one. You're mm -hmm. the one who's going to be special forever. But also like there's like a veiled threat in there also of, well, you're also special right now. So take advantage of this moment while you're special. Yeah. And God bless Utena because her response is just, all I've ever wanted was for Wakaba to be happy. Yeah. So pure. And so while this conversation is happening, we have another scene happening in the background. Like they're intercut together and the audio from one plays over the audio for the other occasionally. Um, and so it is Sionji carving a gift for Wakaba, which is a, a hairpin that looks like a leaf. And she is overcome by the gesture, like the kindness of this gesture that he would make this for her. Which is, again, symbolic in itself because he carved one of the most common things out there, a leaf, because that's how he sees her. One of the most common things out there. <laughs> okay, you're going way more cynical than I was. <laughs> but I want to hear this out before I say anything. Go ahead. Okay. No, the only thing I was going <laughs> to end it with was, but it means the world to her. Some, it's something so ordinary to him. Something so simple and ordinary, just a carving of a leaf uh, made into a hair clip. But to her, it's like one in a million. Right, because it was handmade by him for her. Right. And this is one of the moments that like the defenders of Sionji are going to get up in the mentions about this. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is one of the moments that uh, is actually a complication for his character. Um. Like, you can say, like, yeah, it's it's common. <laughs> but also, it is something that he just has the impulse to do. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the situation he's in, living surreptitiously in her house or in her dorm, and no one knows he's there, and he has very little contact with anyone else. Like, I don't think that he went into this activity as, like, all right, what can I do to like really, really get to her and really sink the hook in as deep as I can? Like, I don't think that he was being that cynical about this. 
No, I don't think so either. I think it's just like, this is too a, symbolic. Like a, yeah, like, I think this is just like a genuinely kind gesture that he happens upon. Like he's not doing it to repair their relationship. Like he, they didn't get in a fight, and then now he has to make up for that. Like this is just like a kind thing that he decides to to do, mm-hmm. and it kind of indicates like who Sionji could be if the other toxic shit wasn't so thoroughly drilled into him. Like if his relationship with Toga wasn't such a prominent feature in how he views himself and the world. Like if his relationship to the other students at Atori Academy wasn't so dominant in his mind. Like the 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 rat race of Atori Academy and the fight for the Rose Bride and all of that. Now we have him at this point months separated from that life Mm -hmm. and what does he do with his time he makes a gift for someone that act gets corrupted in about seven seconds yeah and the ease with which it is corrupted is also very telling of who his character is as a whole but also like i think like this moment here with the gift is Possibly like a window into who he would be if he wasn't stuck at a Tory. Yeah. Like if if the masculine figures in his life were not all toxic assholes, I think Sionji is probably the most redeemable of them. And that's what also makes this such a good gripping, but also emotionally hard relationship. Nope. Episode. <laughs> not relationship episode for me uh, is that there are these moments where you want to cheer for him. Like you want it to be good. There's moments like that for Toga and Akio too. Yeah. And like, that's the thing about abusers, right? Is that they aren't, like pure evil (laughs) yeah um otherwise like literally no one would want to be around them at any moment um they do have their good qualities i think in sionji's case the one of the qualities that he isn't like as aware of as toga is is like how attractive he is yeah (laughs) because like in his mind he's always comparing himself to toga Mm-hmm. Like Toga is his physical ideal and which that is plenty homoerotic. Um, but like Toga is very confident in his own attractiveness. Sionji is so careless with the hearts of the people that he deals with. Like we see how careless he is with Wakaba's feelings. And I think that this is kind of a parallel to Utana and Utana's lack of self-awareness regarding her own popularity and her own charisma. Mm-hmm. And so the the pen drops when Sionji asks about Anthe. Just all of a sudden, casually, how's Anthe well, doing? She's updating him on like the situation at the school. Like she's telling him about like what's going on with the student council and yeah. yeah. And notably leaves Anthe out for yes. a reason. <laughs> and 
he asks this question and the birds that have been calling in the background go silent. Mm-hmm. And at the like the opening shot of this scene um, is her buying meat at the grocery store. And this he asks this question and like you can see her thumb pressing through the plastic seal on the meat package. And like the tension of the scene is just captured in the tension of the film on the package. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was perfect. And then all these racing thoughts that she has uh, all of a sudden of if he goes back to school, he'll stop living with me. He'll stop thinking about me. Yeah, he'll forget and- her if she- if he goes back to his life at a Tory. Which is interesting because at the very beginning of the episode, she was totally on board with helping him get back into school. Like they were talking about it, kind of. And now all of a sudden, because Anthe was brought up, it's he's going to forget about me. Yeah, it makes it clear that no matter how much time has passed, she's number two. Mm hmm. And meanwhile, uh, freaking Makage just, <laughs> I don't know, like, ninjutsus his way into her <laughs> dorm room? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and shows up and starts talking to Sionji. And notably, Sionji recognizes Mikage. Calls him by name. Yeah. So this could very well be like a, oh, all rich people know each other type thing. Or they just have a previous relationship. Who knows? Well, we know that Mikage was at the school prior to the beginning of this series and then like left and came back. Like he's another one of those who left and came back. Um, Okay, okay. And so, yeah, him recognizing Mikage... Might just be that, like, he's an upperclassman, so he had seen him around before Mikage left. Okay. And, like, I think it's a little weird and unclear. Like, I know that they say that Mikage is in high school, but they also, um, like, he's teaching a seminar. And he counsels professors and, like, writes their research for them or something? Mikage's actual... position or grade is murky at best like it's entirely possible that he's also like a teacher (laughs) (laughs) mikage gives that i'm definitely already in college vibe right like he the vibe he gives me is like the college professor who is just out of their doctoral program and everyone still mistakes for being a student Yep. Yep. Like the first year teachers kind of thing where they are just like literally just four years older than the oldest students on campus. <laughs> yeah. And he says to Sionji, there's <laughs> basically there's no secret on this campus that I can't find. <laughs> yeah. No secret remains hidden from the Black Rose Circle. Like, he has known Sionji has been here the whole time. 
wild. Which, and then who okay. else would have known that except someone like the end of the world, right? Like that's the other omniscient figure that we have in the series. The one who knows everything is the end of the world. Oh, I have several thoughts about this, but we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. So uh, so he pops the question, like, how do you plan to free yourself from purgatory? Oh, and also, like, needles it in about, like, to think a former student council vice president is living on the good graces of a female student. Like, totally trying to get at, like, some kind of macho like, pride thing. Yeah. He's like, I'm worried about the future of this school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then just says, like, what if we helped you out a little bit? Uh, Again, total mobster shit. Yeah. <laughs> we're, like, we're going to do you this favor of getting you back in school, but we want something in return. It's not big. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about how, what it's going to cost. I don't. I don't want much. Yeah, don't worry about the details. It's fine. Uh, which this is what I want to talk about. So, the thing that Mikage requires that he calls hardly anything is the leaf hairpin that Sionji carved for Wakaba. Wakaba's already paranoid and worried about losing Sionji. And here comes Anthe with the fucking leaf in her hair. Now, pray tell, how the fuck does she have that? Like, this gives us no context. <laughs> it's yeah. just... It's just Mikage going, oh, it's fine. We just need something small. And then here comes Anthe. And also, notably, there's only... I'm putting my tinfoil hat on here. Um, there's only the two of them walking down the street, passing each other. Just Anthe coming from the direction of her home, of Wakaba's home. Or the dorms in with, general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the leaf in her hair. And Wakaba passing by, going home. And Wakaba, understandably, loses her shit. Because there's only one of those. So how the fuck does Anthe have it? So here's my thing. How in God's name did Mikage get that to Anthe? There has to be collusion. There has to be. Which again brings up the whole end of the world thing, and it's too convenient with Anthe, especially this look that she has on her face as she's passing Wakaba. It seems very intentional, like she knows what she is doing. But Mikage's and, whole goal is to kill Anthe. Right. But who's to say this whole shit isn't or orchestrated from the beginning? It could all just be bullshit. <laughs> these two could just be fucking working together wait so they're working together to kill her i'm confused no that could just be bullshit oh okay yeah that's what i was saying because like, like selling uh selling Mamiya that line of oh yeah we'll get the rose bride and then fucking working with her on the back end which do whatever you want but like <laughs> 
<sighs> well, I, I would say that, like, we know that Anthe has that casual cruelty streak in her. Yeah. And also, we know that Mamiya has, like, Anthe powers. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, like, it's conceivable that Mamiya is the one who, like, was aware of, like, what strings to pull to make this entire relationship fall apart. It's just too convenient for me. The th- the time and the thread of Makage getting that fucking leaf. And also, I'll bring up something else in a second. But getting the leaf and Anthe getting it and just putting it in her hair and walking by Wakaba, it feels way too intentional. And especially because you mentioned she has that cruel streak. She might not even like Sionji, but she will damn sure remind a bitch that he is hers. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's one thing. And also the fact that I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. The fact that at the end of the episode, when Makage does the burning of the student body, of the hun- one of the hundred students that like yeah. is associated with the ring. He drops the leaf back in there and burns it. <laughs> so there was an ex- there were two exchanges where one in which Anthe got it and another which she gave it back. <laughs> These two are in leagues with each other. I will not give this up until proven otherwise. <laughs> They are in leagues. They are colluding. Okay. I will I will find my proof. <laughs> I will find my proof before the end of this arc. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how it turns out. <laughs> that's my tinfoil hat conspiracy, and that's my soapbox for the episode. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like Wakaba flies into a proper rage. Um, at this point and um, just like the twitch in her face as she is staring at walk or at uh, Anthe um, yeah so she shows up in the confessional and at this point like the confession doesn't reveal much of anything um, it's just like all the stuff that we've already seen play out. We just have her verbally saying like, he's all, uh, or she's all that Sayonji ever wanted. And so she's upset about this and she feels like she will only ever be a face in the crowd, but with him, she could be special. Mm -hmm. And one thing I noted at the very end And this is going to be another parallel that will come up later during the duel. The elevator reaches the bottom floor with the room with the shoes. Wakaba is still on her feet. Yeah. 
all the other characters we've seen so far collapse in a heap on the ground or like doubled over in the chair or something like that. Wakaba is on her feet ready to cut a bitch. Yeah. And so we cut to Sionji psyching himself up to go back to school. He's put on his uniform. He's packed his bag. And uh, he has this conversation with, with Wakaba where she asks about the pin. And he's like, oh, yeah, um, sorry. I, I Turns out I couldn't give that to you. Um, but I'll buy something expensive for you. And can I mail it to you? Is that going to be cool? <laughs> like, like, oh, my God. So typical, dismissive. like, yeah. And typical man cheating on his wife behavior. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well, right. Because, like, her emotional reality is so outside of his concept that, like, he has no clue what he has just done to her. Mm-hmm. Or how dismissive he is being about her. Because her feelings were never real to him. We saw that in the first scene with them. He's projecting all his shit into the void between them. Because he can't understand that she actually has feelings for him. And so now we come to this moment where... It's just so shockingly callous because to him, her feelings were never real. It never registered with him what she was actually thinking or feeling in all this time because he was never listening to her. Mm -hmm. He was so focused on himself. So now he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll send you something. It's fine. Because he doesn't get that it wasn't about just her having things. It was that he had made a gift for her. Yeah. It wasn't the transaction. It was the actual exactly. thought behind it. Exactly. And because he is wrapped up in his transactional relationships. That like to him, a gift is the gift itself is fungible. Like it doesn't matter whether it is a leaf pin or a bouquet of flowers or, you know, the castle itself to him. It's like, whatever it's a gift. The act is giving. Here you go. Mm -hmm. To her, it was the thought and action that was making that one gift special for her. And then he gives it away to another girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which by the way, he did just give it to Makage. He's, he says that moments before. He yeah. didn't actually give it to Anthe. Mikage was the one that did that. <laughs> so then she moves at what I wrote in my notes as vampire speed. <laughs> Which, love that for her. This is the one good part about, <laughs> about this transformation for her, is that she just moves with the craziest speed you've ever seen in this show and gets what she was going after. Yeah, she crosses the, the room in a second and uh, gets her gets her katana to go fight. <laughs> Just r rips it right out of him. And also the locker scene, the traditional locker scene and Utena opening it and With getting the, the note girls, out. Yep. 
Yeah, but because of the context of the last episode where there was no duel in Utena, we have the weird scene of Utena like being around the locker and then she opens it and it's a note from Wakaba with like a little smiley face. Like <laughs> chibi Wakaba on the note that's like, nah, you know, sticking her tongue out. And then to turn around to this one where it's an actual duelist note and it is from Wakaba. Again, the, from Wakaba. The cruel irony of Utena not knowing. Ah, it destroyed me. <laughs> yep. And so then we, ha- but then like we have the shadow girl play itself where um, we have a, uh, uh, a fox girl and a rabbit girl comparing like the difficulty of uh, like the rituals that go into marriage. And Utena is just like, why not just not get married? <laughs> and like, I think that one of the things like about this episode is like, this is going with the, um, going with that idea of going back to a few episodes back about like the so-called normal life, like get a normal job, uh, you know, have a normal family, all of that. And the reply was like, but that's not what you really want, is it? And I think in this episode, that is what Wakaba wants. Like, she does want a normal life. And um, instead, like, we have this moment of her being thrust into uh, being, like, so-called special. <laughs> Like mm-hmm. having her moment in the in the sun, as it were. And it's framed in such a way that like it's only a temporary thing and she won't ever be happy. And so like she has to strike while the iron is hot on this and lock down Sionji. <laughs> yeah. And Utina's very measured response of but what about not? <laughs> <laughs> Like, just take the direct action instead of, like, agonizing over this. Yeah. But what do you think about this one? I thought it was interesting that it was definitely the shadow... Nope. Definitely the shortest Shadow Girls sequence we've ever had. It went by in the blink of an eye. Uh, I do think you hit the nail on the head with the context. And... Yeah, the only thing I have to add to that was what I had already said, so we're good. (laughs) (laughs) So we get to the duel. And, oh, God, the buildup to this one. Again, the cruel irony of the note in the locker, Utena not knowing who it's from, her doing the ritual of climbing those stairs getting to the top and seeing that it's Wakaba and the devastation is just written and the shock is just written all over her face. Oh yeah. Like out of everybody at Otori Academy, she is the last person she thought she would see there. And I'm not going to lie. Makage was really smart with this one. He really was because he almost got her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
of all the people who could get that physically close to Utena. Yeah. Utena was not prepared to defend herself for this one. At all. No. And to the point where <laughs> the duel is starting and Anthe is going, Utena, take the sword out of me now. <laughs> And over and U- over. Like, she repeats it several times. Yeah. And Utena's not doing it. She's just st- still so in shock that she can't even comprehend that Wakaba is standing on the other side and is going to fight her, is going to try and kill her and Anthe. Because th- these are not just duels for the Rose Bride anymore. These are duels to kill the Rose Bride. Right. And also, like, of all the characters, like it has been since Kanae at the very beginning of the Black Rose saga that we have had a character who independently hates Anthe. Mm-hmm. Or like has a reason to hate Anthe. Um, everyone else, it has been like the the hold that the character has on one of the main duelists. That has been the important part. Right. But in this case, in this episode, in this scene, in this duel, Wakaba is more important than Sionji. Because it is Wakaba's feeling about Anthe that it is Wakaba's feeling about Anthe that matters here, not Sionji's. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he wants Anthe back and he wants you know, the, the power to revolutionize the world. He wants his eternal thing. But for the purposes of this duel, Mikage has pushed exactly the right button to drive Wakaba to actual rage at Anthe specifically. And again, given the context that we got from the last episode of basically only people with some level of evil in their heart are only good enough, quote unquote, good enough for the black Rose confessional elevator and the whole process. This devastated me too, Mm -hmm. to see Wakaba up there and go through this whole process because this whole time we've seen her as Utena's best friend and We've seen the good in her in that episode where she and Utena fought, had like a, a best friend fight, not an actual duel. Yeah. Uh, where Wakaba was trying to snap Utena out of it, out of losing Anthe. And she was so good. And it's like, you know, from watching the show that Wakaba is so good. And it's so painful to see her having gone through the Black Rose conversion. Right. Yeah. And Utena even says when Anthe's begging her, like, like urgently calling out to her, take the sword out of me. Utena says, Anthe, I can't. She's my friend. <laughs> I can't do this. Yeah. And so like she is, Utena is trying to do for Wakaba what Wakaba did for her all those episodes ago. Of mm-hmm. snapping her out of it without fighting her. And it gets really violent 
Yeah. Um, like more so than most of the duels. Wakaba at one point grabs Utena by her hair and holds her sword to her throat. Not to cut the rose off, just to shout at her about like how Utena can't understand what it's like to be average. That Utena has no idea what it's like to be in Utena's shadow. Yeah. She says, you all look down on me without a care in the world. And without a second thought, trample the rest of us. Yeah. And that is so heart-wrenching to hear. Yeah, like the idea that this is just like a silent thing that Utana has, or uh, that this is just a silent thing that Wakaba has been holding on to. Her entire friendship with Utana is heartbreaking. Yeah. Because it goes back to, you know, that scene with Akio, which is part of the, the game, right? Like it validates what Akio was saying about Utana pointing out that like she's not even aware of how uh, she's not even aware of how special she is and rather than it being something that's supposed to be helpful of you know like in a team sport you have a star player like you're still a member of a team you need to keep that ego in check um, he's not doing it to help her he's doing it to groom her but like this is a moment where unintentionally Wakaba validates a thing that Akio was saying, which is like, he was saying it in a uh, like calm way, but now she's saying it again in, in rage, which is like, you have no idea how big of an impact you have on the people around you. This also, to me, just because of what you said, speaks to me of the bigger game that's at play. Reminds me of the first episode of this arc and the recap wrap-up episode of the last. Where Akio is talking to the figure trapped inside the castle and talking about like all the different seals locks you know the different things that basically utena would have to the trials that she would have to face and the things that she would have to achieve the goals and uh things she would have to unlock um really feels like <laughs> because of the nature of their relationship and because of the things that we've seen in this episode with anthe uh these two are i mean <laughs> Once again, more collusion, more things in league with one another, uh, pulling the strings to make certain things happen. And this felt like it, it is a huge trial for Utena. And she passed it with flying colors. Yeah. Um, she says, like, she admits she doesn't understand what Wakaba is saying, but she does. Like, she says, the one thing I do know is that you're my best friend. Hold on, I'll save you. And like, this is a moment where 
We don't see the power of Dios ever show up. No. And so we can see like how far Utena has come where we have someone with an actual sword being swung at her and she still disarms her with her bare hands and manages to cut the rose off. And this is another moment. There's a lot of visual parallels from beginning to end of this episode. This one parallels the, the elevator. Everyone else that we've ever seen defeated in the duels collapses into one of the like outlines on the floor. Utena never lets Wakaba fall here. Mm-hmm. She holds her up the entire time. And we see a moment of, I don't know if it's self-awareness. I don't know if it's just pain. But Wakaba, as she's being held up by Utena, again, letting out a single tear. Yeah. So then we have at the close of the episode, or actually. Um, so we have the dual song for this duel, though, which is Magic Lantern, Butterfly, Moth, 16th century. Extra as fuck. Uh, <laughs> this song has a lot of stuff about like um, an old soldier and, uh, you know, pitying. Uh, an old man who used to be good at what he's doing, um, used to be a good warrior, and uh, it talks about Pyrrhic victories. It talks about you know the Trojan War. It is um, all again circling that idea of whatever power you have is temporary, so make use of it like while you can. Like, you won't be young forever. You won't be able forever. Um, So do what you can with the time that you have. And, but it, like, it leans on the the imagery of being, like, pathetic afterward. Mm -hmm. And so it speaks to that, like, core fear that Wakaba is feeling at this moment of, like, the moment she is without Sionji, she goes back to being a pathetic nobody. Without recognizing that, like, Utena may not get that, you know, she is casting too big of a shadow for Wakaba to tolerate. But she does still, like, she is still important to Utena. Mm -hmm. Throughout the whole episode, she said multiple times, I just want to see her happy. Yeah, for sure. So then at the end, we have like this visual parallel to the very beginning of the episode where now we're following Sionji as he's walking up to the school and he is walking triumphantly. And again, in that same golden light, um, I think this time of probably morning, but like he is approaching the school triumphantly returning Um he is the prodigal son. Um, he is back at school. And so, again, we get the rumors about him being back. And one of the girls says that she heard that the Black Rose Circle had something to do with it. They pulled some strings to get him back in school. Um, <laughs> one of them says he's pretty smug for a guy who was expelled, which fair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to Wakaba 
coming home again. And again, like a shot for shot parallel of the beginning of the episode. And this time when she comes home and closes the door and locks it behind her, the room is empty. And she says, I'm home. And there's no one there to answer her. It's so sad. It's so fucking sad, dude. Like, (laughs) this episode made me feel things, man. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that is why I say it's one of my favorite episodes to date is because it has such an emotional impact. And I feel like a lot of shows or movies will try to do something like this. Not these exact parameters, but have a moment of impact upon some of the show's main characters. And so (laughs) many of them drop the ball because they don't get you invested enough. Yeah. But we've seen these characters go through some stuff at this point. We're invested in the relationship between Wakaba and Utena, especially given the fight that they've already had. And how Wakaba basically snapped Utena out of it and helped her the first time around. So to see this come back around, but for there to be not a happy ending for Wakaba Mm -hmm. is just (laughs) devastating. It's so upsetting. And (sighs) she feels so down on herself. She feels that she's not special And you just want to shake her and go, but you are. (laughs) Nobody, (laughs) nobody else could have done the things that you've done. So anyway. What are your (sighs) predictions for next time? Oh, we get to see the trio. Uh, Whose names I can never remember. (laughs) (laughs) Keiko, Aiko, and Yuko. Yes, we get to see the trio uh, that the show calls Troublesome Insects, which is yeah. hilarious. It's a hell of a title. Yeah. Uh, and apparently we're going to get some more Nanami and Utena interaction next episode. Um, I do want to point out that like another translation of this title is Vermin. Bruh. <laughs> my god yeah (laughs) so what are your predictions what do you think is going to happen with these three Mm. i don't know that we'll see any backstory per se but it's just going to be interesting to see their characters get a little bit more fleshed out um i don't know maybe they'll take it upon themselves to like throw something at utena i don't know (laughs) well um do you think we're gonna get a duel next episode like is one of them gonna be a black rose duelist Ooh, how about all three of them are that's my (laughs) prediction (laughs) they're a package deal baby (laughs) they each get like two of them get each of like nanami's swords and then the last one is just like using her fists (laughs) yeah Although that, I guess, like, begs the question of which uh, which person they would actually be drawing a sword from. Because we've already seen Nanami 
being used for Tsubuki. Say that one more time. I'm so sorry. Who would be the like sword donor for these, for whichever one of them or each of them who becomes a duelist? Because like we've already seen the obvious choice, which is Nanami. We've already mm-hmm. seen her used for Tsuabuki's duel. Hmm. I don't know because my my guess would have been Nanami. I, maybe there's like some mystery. <laughs> is there some mystery guy out there that they're gonna pull a sword from? I don't know. Are they gonna pull swords from each of the the oh boy trio? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The psychic, the psychic triplets. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so before we wrap up the episode, I have to give my highlights from my essay that I wrote, which is really just the last the last scene that we see of, like you said, Sionji triumphantly returning to the school and Wakaba returning to an empty home. It pains me so much to see that flip and how devastating it is to Wakaba and not a single inch of skin is off of Sionji's nose from this whole interaction. He didn't lose a damn thing. He gained everything. And Wakaba feels like she's lost it all. Oh, yeah. Like, that is... That's always the way that this happens, right? Like, if you think about... um, Like, if you think about back to high school, this happened in every high school. It still happens to this day where there will be um there will be a girl who gets a reputation for being a slut when like if you examine the situation at all i mean first off it takes two right (laughs) but second like hearing story after story years after the fact of like those actually being rape cases yeah you know, like this hits on that same gut level of we have Sionji coming back triumphant and Wakaba having to pick up the pieces. Yeah. Because like he will never suffer any consequences for what he just put her through. I wish the show had put Utena there with her at the end. But I know why they didn't because it would have softened the blow. And this is the, this is what Wakaba is feeling Mm -hmm. is just all alone. Yeah. Not special. (sighs) I'm probably going to have a yearly watch of this episode from here on out. (laughs) Oh, uh, this is something that this is something that like I failed to disclose to you before we started this. Um, yeah, no, this series is going to live rent-free in your head for the rest of your life. Um, you're probably <laughs> going to have multiple rewatches of this series in the future. I am betting 
I'm gonna put I'm gonna put it down right now that I am betting once we finish this podcast, the first thing you're gonna do is go back to the first episode and rewatch it. <laughs> because, yeah, that will probably happen. Because the end of this series is going to change everything. Oh God. I will say, like, you have picked up on more than most people would in their first viewing, um, which is a comment that, like, shows up on Twitter <laughs> as well. Uh, <laughs> um, unfortunately, like, I just dropped two tweets back to back that kind of blew up. So scrolling back to, like, the last comments that I've gotten from from people is a bit of a, a hassle at the moment. Um, if you're listening to this in the future, uh, this would be the biblically accurate Utena tweet. <laughs> <laughs> and the, um, can you guess which episode we're recording? Um, where I just have scrawled on a notepad, fucking Sionji girl, no. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we do have a, a comment from Oceanic Eternity, which is that this episode makes them so sad because um, Sionji clearly manipulated Wakaba. And to be honest, every time you see a relationship in Utana, it's bad news. <laughs> yeah, I feel your pain. <laughs> uh, we also have another comment that uh, Wakaba deserved so much better, which... Yes, I second that. <laughs> she does. And I want to, f I'm going to have to go find, I want to see uh, my happy girl Wakaba fanfics. And I also, quite honestly, want to see some vampire AU Wakaba fix. <laughs> After that little preview of a run she gave us, like, girl, yeah. I want to see more. Okay, so this is a total tangent. And I know ugh, this episode is so long already. Um so the thing that got me into this show was an mm -hmm. AMV from almost <gasps> 20 years ago called Rosette Nocturne. This is like predating YouTube by quite some time. And it has since been uploaded onto YouTube. But like seeing this AMV is what got me to first check out the show. Now, from that AMV... And from how it was recommended to me, like the, the person who connected me, who like sent me the link to this when it was first put up on whatever site it was, or like if they just like sent me the video or whatever. Um, it's been like 20 years. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, the context around getting it kind of made me think that I was watching a vampire show. Mm -hmm. So, like, when I first sat down to watch Utena, for, like, the first couple episodes, I was waiting for her to be turned into a vampire. Like, I thought that the student council were all vampires and that the prince was a vampire and, like, this whole thing was a vampire show. I love that for you. <laughs> I hate that it wasn't actually... <laughs> that this, like, alternate... <laughs> Revolutionary Girl Tennis Show doesn't actually exist because that sounds kick-ass. I, I know, right? Like, I want now um, I want a vampire Utana show. Like, I want this show, everything stays the same, 
but I want them all to be vampires also. And like, <laughs> Give us that reboot. <laughs> yes. Okay, look, um, Ikuhara, if you are listening to this, I need you to revisit one of your old works. I need you to go back to Revolutionary Girl Utena and make it a vampire story. It would be so much fun. It's already great. It would be so much fun if they're vampires. Because, oh, like, you also have all of the vampire tropes about, um, about aristocracy and like the class commentary that vampires naturally invoke. That, like, you have this class of people who exists solely by draining the blood of other people, which is always, always a metaphor for class and. Um, occasionally a metaphor for disease, but like that's just a blatantly wrong take on vampires. Um, <laughs> um, but like you also have all of the elegance of the tropes around vampires because they do represent the aristocracy. Like this show is very vampy already. Mm-hmm. Like I cannot stress this enough. Um, our main character. Spends considerable time in a coffin as it is. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Also, just like the sapphic roots and origins of vampires, like it is right there. It's oh, all right yeah, there. Absolutely. Ripe for the taking. <laughs> in this AMV, we do have the, the coffin imagery featured fairly prominently. And Utana's coffin is not the last one that we will see on this show. And so, like, can you understand why I would think that this is a vampire show if all I saw was, like, this cool AMV where there's a lot of coffins? (laughs) There is coffins, pianos, swords, and roses. That's a vampire formula. Yeah, seriously. Send me that fanfic. Send me that fanfic. (laughs) I I, I need to see (laughs) Vampire Utena. Send it in to our Gmail account. (laughs) absolute destiny podcast at gmail.com and send it into our twitter account zetayudmaypod because if you're on twitter and you're an artist who listens to this show i need to see your vampire utana art oh and your fanfics please for the love of god um also i'm pretty sure i've i've definitely heard of if not seen that amv you're talking about i will link it to you i'll send it to you Hell yeah, please. (laughs) I need this. I need this. 